Section 1 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 1. It is now time to relate the events which, since the Battle of La Hague, had taken place at Saint-Germain. James, after seeing the fleet which was to have convoyed him back to his kingdom burned down to the water edge, had returned in no good humor to his abode near Paris. Misfortune generally made him devout after his own fashion, and he now starved himself and flogged himself till his spiritual guides were forced to interfere. It is difficult to conceive a duller place than Saint-Germain was when he held his court there, and yet there was scarcely in all Europe a residence more enviably situated than that which the generous Louis had assigned to his suppliants. The woods were magnificent, the air clear and salubrious, the prospects extensive and cheerful. No charm of rural life was wanting, and the towers of the most superb city of the continent were visible in the distance. The royal apartments were richly adorned with tapestry and marquetry vases of silver, and mirrors in gilded frames. A pension of more than forty thousand pounds sterling was annually paid to James from the French treasury. He had a guard of honor composed of some of the finest soldiers in Europe. If he wished to amuse himself with field sports, he had at his command an establishment far more sumptuous than that which had belonged to him when he was at the head of a great kingdom, an army of huntsmen and fowlers, a vast arsenal of guns, spears, bugle-horns, and tents, miles of network, staghounds, foxhounds, harriers, packs of boar and packs of wolf, gerfalcons for the heron, and haggard for the wild duck. His presence chamber and his antechamber were in outward show as splendid as when he was at Whitehall. He was still surrounded by blue ribbons and white staves, but over the mansion and the domain brooded a constant gloom, the effect partly of bitter regrets and of deferred hopes, but chiefly of the abject superstition which had taken complete possession of his own mind, and which was affected by almost all those who aspired to his favor. His palace wore the aspect of a monastery. There were three places of worship within the spacious pile. Thirty or forty ecclesiastics were lodged in the building, and their apartments were eyed with envy by noblemen and gentlemen who had followed the fortunes of their sovereign, and who had thought it hard that, when there was so much room under his roof, they should be forced to sleep in the garrets of the neighboring town. Among the murmurers was the brilliant Anthony Hamilton. He has left us a sketch of the life of Saint-Germain. A slight sketch indeed, but not unworthy to the artist to whom we owe the most highly finished and vividly colored picture of the English court in the days when the English court was gayest. He complains that existence was one round of religious exercises, that in order to live in peace it was necessary to pass half the day in devotion or in an outward show of devotion, that if he tried to dissipate his melancholy by breathing the fresh air of that noble terrace which looks down the valley of the Seine, he was driven away by the clamor of a Jesuit who had got hold of some unfortunate Protestant royalists from England and was proving to them that no heretic could go to heaven. 
in general hamilton said men suffering under a common calamity have a strong fellowship feeling and are disposed to render good offices to each other but it was not so at saint germain there all was discord jealousy bitterness of spirit malignity was concealed under the show of friendship and of piety all the saints of the royal household were praying for each other and backbiting each other from morning to night here and there in the throng of hypocrites might be remarked a man too high-spirited to dissemble but such a man however advantageously he might have made himself known elsewhere was certain to be treated with disdain by the inmates of that sullen abode such was the court of james as described by a roman catholic yet however disagreeable that court may have been to a roman catholic it was infinitely more disagreeable to a protestant for the protestant had to endure in addition to all the dullness of which the roman catholic complained a crowd of vexations from which the roman catholic was free in every competition between a protestant and a roman catholic the roman catholic was preferred in every quarrel between a protestant and a roman catholic the roman catholic was supposed to be in the right while the ambitious protestant looked in vain for promotion while the dissipated protestant looked in vain for amusement the serious protestant looked in vain for spiritual instruction and consolation james might no doubt easily have obtained permission for those members of the church of england who had sacrificed everything in his cause to meet privately in some modest oratory and to receive the eucharistic bread and wine from the hands of one of their own clergy but he did not wish his residence to be defiled by such impious rites dr dennis granville who had quitted the richest deanery the richest archdeanery and one of the richest livings in england rather than take the oaths gave mortal offence by asking leave to read prayers to the exiles in his own communion his request was refused and he was so grossly insulted by his master's chaplains and their retainers that he was forced to quit saint germain lest some other anglican doctor should be equally importunate james wrote to inform his agents in england that he wished no protestant divine to come out to him indeed the nonjuring clergy were at least as much sneered at and as much railed at at his palace as in his nephew's if any man had a claim to be mentioned with respect at saint germain it was surely sancroft yet it was reported that bigots who were assembled there never spoke of him but with aversion and disgust the sacrifice of the first place in the church of the first place in the peerage of the mansion at lambeth and the mansion at croydon of immense patronage and of a revenue of more than five thousand a year was thought but a poor atonement for the great crime of having modestly remonstrated against the unconstitutional declaration of indulgence sancroft was pronounced to be just such a traitor and just such a penitent as judas iscariot the old hypocrite had it was said while affecting reverence and love for his master given the fatal signal to his master's enemies when the mischief had been done and could not be repaired the conscience of the sinner had begun to torture him he had like his prototype blamed himself and bemoaned himself he had like his prototype flung down his wealth at the feet of those whose instrument he had been the best thing that he could now do was to make the parallel complete by hanging himself 
james seemed to have thought that the strongest proof of kindness which he could give to heretics who had resigned wealth country family for his sake was to suffer them to be beset on their dying beds by his priests if some sick man helpless in body and in mind and deafened by the din of bad logic and bad rhetoric suffered a wafer to be thrust into his mouth a great work of grace was triumphantly announced to the court and the neophyte was buried with all the pomp of religion but if a royalist of the highest rank and most stainless character died professing firm attachment to the church of england a hole was dug in the fields and at the dead of night he was flung into it and covered up like a mass of carrion such were the obsequies of the earl of dunfermline who had served the house of stuart with the hazard of his life and to the utter ruin of his fortunes who had fought at killiecranky and who had after the victory lifted from the earth the still breathing remains of dundee while living he had been treated with contumely the scottish officers who had long served under him had in vain entreated that when they were formed into a company he might still be their commander his religion had been thought a fatal disqualification a worthless adventurer whose only recommendation was that he was a papist was preferred dunfermline continued during a short time to make his appearance in the circle which surrounded the prince whom he had served too well but it was to no purpose the bigots who ruled the court refused to the ruined and expatriated protestant lord the means of subsistence he died of a broken heart and they refused him even a grave the insults daily offered at saint-germain to the protestant religion produced a great effect in england the whigs triumphantly asked whether it were not clear that the old tyrant was utterly incorrigible and many even of the nonjurors observed his proceedings with shame disgust and alarm the jacobite party had from the first been divided into two sections which three or four years after the revolution began to be known as the compounders and the non-compounders the compounders were those who wished for a restoration but for a restoration accompanied by a general amnesty and by guarantees for the security of the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the realm the non-compounders thought it downright whiggery downright rebellion to take advantage of his majesty's unfortunate situation for the purpose of imposing on him any condition the plain duty of his subjects was to bring him back what traitors he would punish what traitors he would spare what laws he would observe and with what laws he would dispense were questions to be decided by himself alone if he decided them wrongly he must answer for his fault to heaven and not to his people the great body of english jacobites were more or less compounders the pure non-compounders were chiefly to be found among the roman catholics who very naturally were not solicitous to obtain any security for a religion which they thought heretical or for a polity from the benefit of which they were excluded there were also some protestant nonjurors such as kettlewell and hicks who resolutely followed the theory of filmer to all the extreme consequences to which it led but though kettlewell tried to convince his countrymen that monarchical government had been ordained by god not as a means of making them happy here but as a cross which it was their duty to take up and bear in the hope of being recompensed for their sufferings hereafter and though hicks assured them that there was not a single compounder in the whole theban legion 
very few churchmen were inclined to run the risk of the gallows merely for the purpose of re-establishing the high commission and the dispensing power the compounders formed the main strength of the jacobite party in england but the non-compounders had hitherto had undivided sway at saint germain no protestant no moderate roman catholic no man who dared hint that any law could bind the royal prerogative could hope for the smallest mark of favor from the banished king the priest and the apostate melfort the avowed enemy of the protestant religion and of civil liberty of parliament and of trial by jury and of the habeas corpus act were in exclusive possession of the royal ear herbert was called chancellor walked before the other officers of the state wore a black robe embroidered with gold and carried a seal but he was a member of the church of england and therefore he was not suffered to sit at the council board the truth is that the faults of james head and heart were incurable in his view there could be between him and his subjects no reciprocity of obligation their duty was to risk property liberty life in order to replace him on the throne and then to bear patiently whatever he chose to inflict upon them they could no more pretend to merit before him than before god when they had done all they were still unprofitable servants the highest praise due to the royalist who shed his blood on the field of battle or on the scaffold for hereditary monarchy was simply that he was not a traitor after all the severe discipline which the deposed king had undergone he was still as much bent on plundering and abasing the church of england as on the day when he told the kneeling fellows of maudlin to get out of his sight or on the day when he sent the bishops to the tower he was in the habit of declaring that he would rather die without seeing england again than stoop to capitulate with those whom he ought to command in the declaration of april sixteen ninety two the whole man appears without disguise full of his own imaginary rights unable to understand how anybody but himself can have any rights dull obstinate and cruel another paper which he drew up about the same time shows if possible still more clearly how little he had profited by a sharp experience in that paper he set forth the plan according to which he intended to govern when he should be restored he laid it down as a rule that one commissioner of the treasury one of the two secretaries of state the secretary of war the majority of the great officers of the household the majority of the lords of the bedchamber the majority of the officers of the army should always be roman catholics it was to no purpose that the most eminent compounders sent from london letter after letter filled with judicious counsel and earnest supplication it was to no purpose that they demonstrated in the plainest manner the impossibility of establishing popish ascendancy in a country where at least forty-nine-fiftieths of the population and much more than forty-nine-fiftieths of the wealth and the intelligence were protestant it was to no purpose that they informed their master that the declaration of april sixteen ninety two had been read with exultation by his enemies and with deep affliction by his friends that it had been printed and circulated by the usurpers that it had done more than all the libels of the whigs to inflame the nation against him and that it had furnished 
those naval officers who had promised to support him with a plausible pretext for breaking faith with him and for destroying the fleet which was to have convoyed him back to his kingdom he continued to be deaf to the remonstrances of his best friends in england till those remonstrances began to be echoed at versailles all that information which lewis and his ministers were able to obtain touching the state of our island satisfied them that james would never be restored unless he could bring himself to make large concessions to his subjects it was therefore intimated to him kindly and courteously but seriously that he would do well to change his counsels and his counsellors france could not continue the war for the purpose of forcing a sovereign on an unwilling nation she was crushed by public burdens her trade and industry languished her harvest and her vintage had failed the peasantry were starving the faint murmurs of the provincial estates began to be heard there was a limit to the amount of the sacrifices which the most absolute prince could demand from those whom he ruled however desirous the most christian king might be to uphold the cause of hereditary monarchy and of pure religion all over the world his first duty was to his own kingdom and unless a counter-revolution speedily took place in england his duty to his own kingdom might impose on him the painful necessity of treating with the prince of orange it would therefore be wise in james to do without delay whatever he could honourably and conscientiously do to win back the hearts of his people thus pressed james unwillingly yielded he consented to give a share in the management of his affairs to one of the most distinguished of the compounders charles earl of middleton middleton's family and his peerage were scotch but he was closely connected with some of the noblest houses of england he had resided long in england and he had been appointed by charles the second one of the english secretaries of state and had been entrusted by james with the lead of the english house of commons his abilities and acquirements were considerable his temper was easy and generous his manners were popular and his conduct had generally been consistent and honourable he had when popery was in the ascendant resolutely refused to purchase the royal favour by apostasy roman catholic ecclesiastics had been sent to convert him and the town had been much amused by the dexterity which which the layman baffled the divines a priest undertook to demonstrate the doctrine of transubstantiation and made the approaches in the usual form your lordship believes in the trinity who told you so said middleton not believe in the trinity cried the priest in amazement nay said middleton prove your religion to be true if you can but do not catechize me about mine as it was plain that the secretary was not a disputant whom it was easy to take at an advantage the controversy ended almost as soon as it had begun when fortune changed middleton adhered to the cause of hereditary monarchy with a steadfastness which was the more respectable because he would have had no difficulty in making his peace with the new government his sentiments were so well known that when the kingdom was agitated by apprehensions of an invasion and an insurrection he was arrested and sent to the tower but no evidence on which he could be convicted of treason was discovered and when the dangerous crisis was passed he was set at liberty it should seem indeed that during the three years which followed the revolution he was by no means an active plotter he saw that a restoration could be effected only with the general assent of the nation 
and that the nation would never assent to a restoration without securities against popery and arbitrary power. He therefore conceived that, while his banished master obstinately refused to give such securities, it would be worse than idle to conspire against the existing government. Such was the man whom James, in consequence of strong representations from Versailles, now invited to join him in France. The great body of compounders learned with delight that they were at length to be represented in the council at Saint-Germain by one of their favorite leaders. Some noblemen and gentlemen, who, though they had not approved of the deposition of James, had been so much disgusted by his perverse and absurd conduct that they had long avoided all connection with him, now began to hope that he had seen his error. They had refused to have anything to do with Melfort, but they communicated freely with Middleton. The new minister conferred also with the four traitors whose infamy had been made preeminently conspicuous by their station, their abilities, and their great public services. With Godolphin, the great object of whose life was to be in favor with both the rival kings at once, and to keep, through all revolutions and counter-revolutions, his head, his estate, and a place at the board of treasury. With Shrewsbury, who, having once in a fatal moment entangled himself in criminal and dishonorable engagements, had not had the resolution to break through them. With Marlborough, who continued to profess the deepest repentance for the past and the best intentions for the future. And with Russell, who declared that he was still what he had been the day before La Hague, and renewed his promises to do what Monk had done on condition that a general pardon should be granted to all political offenders, and that the royal power should be placed under strong constitutional restraints. End of section 1. Recording by Richard Carpenter in Seattle, Washington.